Hi listeners, this is your host, Andrea Cody. And before we get started with this episode, I have a couple notes for you. First of all, I want to apologize for the audio in this episode. As difficult as it may be to hear, we are doing a follow-up interview with Christina soon, so you may want to go ahead and listen to this one before the next one. Second, this episode isn't for kids. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Dance Talks. Today is April 19th, 2020, and my guest is Christina Katsidis. She is a teacher of Middle Eastern dance and culture. She has a master's in cross-cultural studies with a concentration in Middle Eastern culture from the University of Houston Clear Lake. She is a five-time recipient of an Individual Artist Award from the Houston Arts Alliance. She also won the choreography category of Houston Press's 100 Best. Christina, thank you for being a part of Dance Talks. Great. Well, we are really looking forward to learning more about you, and we'd love for you to just take us on your journey from the very beginning. Oh my goodness, that's going to start a ways back. Well, when I thought, my first memories of dance were always with my family, and I'm Greek, I'm first generation, born in this country, and people say my father was actually born in Egypt, so that's why I adopted Middle Eastern culture. We, I grew up with it in the house. And there was always beautiful music and singing and dancing, especially when our families would get together. And so the, everyone, it's, and it reminds you of that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, definitely. But <laughs> maybe not quite as, quite as, uh, quite as uh, dramatic as all that. But yes, we did dance and threw great parties all the time. It was wonderful. So that's, that's my early memories. And people were just so free when they danced. It was a place where they were just present and it was just so wonderful. There was so much love and everybody young and old would get together and dance and it was just fantastic. Those are my memories. And then I saw this woman dancing in a festival seen anything since, which is amazing, but she was dressed and she had this owl feather mask and this great cape and this sword and there was this whole dance, mysterious ritual at a festival and I was just mesmerized and I signed my name on the dotted line and it was history ever since and that's mm-hmm. how I got into it. Mm-hmm. Never saw anyone ever again and actually realized that her, her unique perspective on the dance she belonged to a group called the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is a part of a group that goes to the Renaissance Festival. But she had started to do research into ritual dance and women's dances and mysteries. And I think I probably followed suit without realizing it. Cool. So there's, there's the history in a nutshell. <laughs> well, tell us what the next moment was like in terms of training or creating your first work. Once I moved to Houston, there was it had just come off of a huge wave of a belly dance craze. So there were several schools already established. We moved to Houston. There was the Mahal Academy that was established on Voss. That was the old Bacchanal from down in Montrose, which was a Greek restaurant. And above it, they had a Middle Eastern dance school. And people would come take classes. It was a fabulous back in the 70s, apparently. And then in the 80s, the school grew so large that they had to move to a bigger studio and they shared a bar, They shared a space with Fred Astaire, actually out on the box. And 
another school later developed the Serum School of Middle Eastern Dance. And I just started taking classes there when I was very young. I was still in high school. And they saw me and they said, oh my gosh, you, should, you have to start teaching. And so they started training me to teach. And I started performing. And the rest is history, actually, from there. So I stayed with them for a few years and then left both Serum and, and Mahal's because I saw this amazing dancer at one show and she did classical East Indian dance drama. And I was just so taken that it was a complete art form that I said, oh, I have to do that. Like, I have to learn how to do that. And I did, and I found one of Houston's treasures and legends, Ms. Ratna Kumar. And I began to study with her and trained with her for a number of years. And then pretty soon started teaching there and performing there. And then my dance journey kept going on. I have very unusual, I left for a little while and went into West African dance with a wonderful dancer, Rafua Diara, who was in Houston, who studied, who used to dance with the Southern Belize National Ballet, and studied with a year there, went on to do flamenco, and then after a while, went back to Middle Eastern, stayed and went to New York, trained with choreographers and famous dancers there, and realized that this dance is really about your own vision, that you can't just follow your teacher, that you dancers that emerge from this from this dance world each have their own expression, their own way of expression. And so it's not that you follow a school, you, you make it your own. And so I began exploring that and, and integrating all of my dance training technique from East Indian classical dance into Middle Eastern and make it more of a narrative form than it was before. So that was kind of my, my make on it, my take. Tell us about your first performance. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. that was frightening. Of course it was at a student recital. Okay. Uh, those are great. Yeah, but it was nerve-wracking, of course. Yeah. Like, you make your own costume, you pick your own music, and it was a short little, like, three to five minute piece. But it, yeah. was, it was wonderful. Where were you? I was at, at Mahal Academy, and I performed for their students. And it was a night they had brought everybody together. Like, after you finish a certain level of class, you have, like, a graduation recital and then would perform for everyone. Um, but you find out early on, it was early on in my career after a few years, and the only opportunities they had to perform, of course, outside of the studio was if you, if they would hire quote unquote belly dancers for parties, or they would um, have like a night at the nightclubs down at the Shit Channel, the Acropolis is famous, and they had also the Athens Bar and Grill, and at that time, they brought singers from Greece and had them, so it was more like an authentic nightclub. But it was never really, um, I don't know how to explain this. The way that dancers would feel about the dance and the way that the audience would perceive the dance were completely two different things. And so dancing in the nightclubs was always really challenging, especially for me. And then um, there was someone who was a dancer in Middle Eastern dance one time, Yasmina, and she was uh, more influenced by a Muslim faith and then talked about that and, and then encouraged me to like, you don't have to do that. And so I said, okay, I don't have to do that. It doesn't fit my skin to be dancing something like that. And I felt, and then I said, well, how, how do you go from there? And that was, that was definitely a challenge because how do you share an art form that doesn't really have a community or community centered employment that isn't exactly commercial and isn't exactly um, theatrical either. So it became
challenge to open up performance opportunities. And later on, um, I discovered young audiences of Houston and auditioned for them and found a way to bring my love of folklore into a different audience and developed a performance program for them and several workshops for them. And I started teaching for Texas Institute for the Arts and Education. I started teaching for um, Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion. I started working with Children's Museum and different organizations just basically around Houston to do arts and education outreach. And that took off, that's where everything skyrocketed from there. And introducing the program to different schools and other public institutions that started to familiarize the dance on a different level. So, but of course that is also what one signs up for as a performer, one just wants to do one's work. And so it, it was a process of learning, oh my goodness, not only do I have to perform this work, but I have to educate people and then sell the dance to encourage people to see it in this way and start learning it in this way and then performing it in this way. It's been an interesting, uh -huh. it's been an interesting journey all these years. Yeah. Because, wow. right, it's mostly seen as a commercial art form and that developed in the early, um, so Middle Eastern dance has gone through a lot of changes and actually its form today is highly influenced by American influence. Like until the movies, 1920s, when the black and white pictures came out and then all these spectacular movies, right, from the East started to emerge with uh, Errol Flynn and we had... Um, the Thief of Baghdad was a big one. They had the Salome movies. They had Badahari movies. They had Cleopatra movies. And so they would bring these lush images of the East over. And then the Middle East was like, oh, we can get into the pictures too. But they started putting their own traditional dance into the movies. And so that's when belly dancing, one of the threads that it started developing, they started developing these productions based on what they saw the, the U.S. and what the West was doing. Um, their, their first initial attempts were nothing like ours, but they were a la Middle Eastern. And then slowly, as there became a genre born in the actual cities in the Middle East, where in the nightclubs there, um, nightclub owners would start to hire dancers and start to train them in ballet and start to develop their folkloric dance form to become something a little more commercial, like a show. And so that's how it started developing as an actual genre. And then that took off, and that took off into the movies, and voila, we have the kind of ah, that's going today. Wow. So. It was the exportation of it that made it a genre. Before that, it was just dance. Before that, it was, right, mostly folkloric dance, and then uh, mm -hmm. the choreographer, the uh, club owners actually would hire Russian ballet dance masters and come in to train the women mm. in their use of a veil. The veil was used, for example, to teach them about posture, and then it became incorporated into part of their dance, right? And that's how we got the veil dance. Whoa! The would show, oh, look, she knows how to use a veil. That means she was trained with a ballet master and has posture, and then they would discard it. That was, for example, in Egypt. But in other parts of the Middle East, like in Turkey, they have a different cultural background for dance. So I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the Egyptian development in and then dancers, they started developing theatrical uh, movies that were more uh, like musicals, right? Like our musicals with Gene Kelly and Ginger Rogers, right? In that era, they had their own musical movies and they would have numbers with famous singers and dancers. And they became, they 
have their own, that's another story, but that it developed and became highly popularized because there was an off-screen romance between the dancer and the singer in those movies, as well as the on-screen romance that those movies showed. So it was, it really propelled that genre into, into stardom, so to speak. And of course the singers were very, very talented and so were the dancers. I have so many questions about the costuming and the relationship between men and women. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why like their, their fashion is typically covered from head to toe. And then the women don't dance with the men, but then there's like this belly dancing thing. So how did that happen?
long hours of child labor. Um, it became, you know, air was polluted, it was bleak, it was mechanized, it was routine. And then they go to the east where everything is highly artistic. The buildings are, are sculptured, the, the food, there are seven course meals and spices and the fragrances in the air and the dyes. Mm-hmm. start to occupy that part of the country. And then, of course, we didn't have problems with World War II came problems in the Middle East. And the division of traditionally nomadic cultures started to get broken up into countries. And so that's why the arts are kind of difficult today, because the, uh, the works of art from the past are people-bound, whereas later, after World War II, they became nationalized into countries that don't necessarily fall Whoa. So, uh, right, so it becomes difficult because people can be of two different countries but share a closer culture because they're geographically situated near each other than perhaps people who are in the same country but at opposite ends of the country, and so their geographic region and their way of life is no longer compatible. So it becomes very difficult to teach about <laughs> the origins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can. How do you describe your your personal style? Oh my goodness. So mine I don't I don't really do Middle Eastern 
<laughs> yes, at times, you know, there is fulfillment and satisfaction in being able to express exactly what I wanted. But sometimes it's like, wow, I just wish this was just it would come out the way you want it, just free. And it is what it is. It doesn't have to be perfect. It, it is perfect in its expression. Does that make sense? Or <laughs> totally. No. What do you mean illustrate? Okay, yeah. Like the sound waves are moving through her and moving her physically. Right. I don't know how to, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's, it's that you have to listen to it and respond to it. And there's a dialogue in it. There's breath in it. And there's, you give yourself, you give an answer back and you think about it. And you give, I, I, it's like a conversation. But it isn't um, merely uh, every brushstroke of a painting, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Why are you calling it folkloric? What does that word mean to you?
provides, um, yes. Right. I remember that with Al Nishama, their sword dance. It's cool. I would love to see that. Where is that? I see. Yeah. In each country that has. And then certainly in Morocco, they have a strong folkloric tradition, and each Berber family maintains their form and goes and performs at festivals and several times a year, and they keep that up. So I'm not sure. I don't think it's, I'm not sure. I haven't been, but it's been a long time to see these things. But I do think, I mean, I, I've seen them through video, but not. Yeah. And what, what do you do in that context when you perform? Like, what's the format of your show? Of course, your own orchestra. 
Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Have you been there? Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't like a stop on your tour for it. Exactly. Mhm. Exactly. So So in a way it's perfectly preserved. If you go there, Instead, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. I I think uh, I've seen some of the guys from Houston are flying around teaching, giving workshops, you know, it's, and it's incredible to see a big group of men on top of a building in Kuwait, breakdancing. I've been to a couple countries in the Middle East and I kept my eyes peeled for a nightclub and it was just, <laughs> I, and you know, wow. I, I think the closest thing I saw was like one morning I saw a trash can full of beer cans and I thought, I wonder what happened there last night. Circle and line dances like Dusky and um, other Israeli folk dances, for example, that's a whole other story. Like those are owned 
Egypt is better because it has its own national dance. It's true that folkloric dance is okay, but that, yeah, it's, it's, that's another story. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other conversation for mm -hmm. another Right. It was associated with fertility. This is part of the problem that I think it does harken back to pre-Islamic, that's part of my research, so that it does harken back to pre-Islamic times, that uh, it was certainly part of those not goddess-based religions, for lack of better words, and that it was part of the rituals and ceremonies to honor those faiths. And so when monotheistic faiths and the change in government structure came in, Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's almost like I wouldn't imagine, you know, being covered um, doesn't really go hand in hand with a with a performance. Um, so I could imagine that, you know, to to dance, even to be able to be seen dancing means you're not covered. So Unless you're with your husband. Right, that's, if they're Muslim, but not all of them. Oh, right. Yep. So if they're Muslim and they want to dance, right, and they're married, then, or they're not married, then they have to have permission from the male members, right? If they're public, um, to perform publicly. I'm just, this is a blanket statement. It's going to obviously vary from family to family and the degree of orthodoxy. But uh, some completely forbid it. Right. So, so because of 
not all women who dance dance there. Not, I mean, then there's this other, there's a certain people who dance. So we mentioned the Romani people, but there also are, like, in Egypt, there's a class of professional dancers that were not Romani, but were trained. They called them Alalim. So they were perhaps more highly trained companions, um, not necessarily prostitutes, possibly just escorts with uh, the other services, but they were certainly trained as dancers. So there's also that element, like if they, if some of them did have provides, so it's hard to explain all the nuances. It kind of the problems with the reputation, right? There's yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For all of us, like, oh, you're a dancer. Like, that's like the immediate response. So I never tell my Middle Eastern and adopted friends to say, oh, I'm a teacher. And you hear one, well, I teach a lot of cultures. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I well, yeah. yeah. I had to most of the time because until they know me, until they actually got to know me personally, then it, it became an issue. Mm-hmm. And, um, Do you think that's changed over time with dance itself becoming more popular um like on tv and now like when you think dance you don't think a dancer at a strip club you think of a primetime um competition show you know Yeah. There, well, I think career, maybe the careers of dancers who are not ballerinas have exploded so much um, with MTV and movies that now when you say, I think, it, I think when I was growing up, you were either a ballerina or if you said you were a dancer, that meant you were a stripper because you were not a uh, cheerleader and there wasn't any other profession um, except for a dance teacher and you didn't say that. So yeah, I feel like that is that has definitely evolved because I think I know a lot of people who are dancers and they just that's there's a whole new place to do it which has been on stage and studios. And yet what I feel like you're sharing is that you're a dancer in your heart. Yeah. Yet now I see a lot of young people who aspire to be dancers and everybody's thrilled about it and it's Definitely something that they think is going to take them to Broadway or a cruise ship around the world. And it's a, it's a fantastic career option. Video and audio and having a 
Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's really changed. It's mm-hmm. really changed in my field. And, you know, I, I find the video, I'm, I'm one that's very video shy, and I find the video very unforgiving when it comes to choreography. And it's not the same, and it's not natural because the human eye wouldn't register things that a video will. And so it's, it, and it can't possibly communicate the energy or the enthusiasm of a room for a live performance. It's just, but it 
Yeah. Right. It reminds me of the F. Is it the FCC? It reminds me of the FCC. Like here, it's like if you do something of an explicit nature, sexually, you you know you you that that is an exception to the First Amendment. Or at least I mean at least you you know you can't get. I know you can't get a grant to do anything like that, but I'm not. I mean, there's some censorship here, and there's certainly licensing. Mm-hmm. And even in some of the Gulf states, there, the Saudi, the Saudi Kuwait country, remember I read something recently where there was a young woman at a party and they caught her and she got punished for just mm-hmm. being at a party. So um, with males, with other, with members of the opposite sex. So I'm trying to remember. It was just last year I was reading about it in the paper. And so, yeah, I mean, if things still happen like that, I guess dancing is so far away from yeah. But everybody dancing, and I will say that this great female that had very, um, had some very orthodox students at Rice, some very Islamic um, orthodox, and I, I was delighted to know that there were, after after they finished my course, that they were holding parties, they were holding dance parties for themselves. So things continue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Well, before we move on from that, in Houston, uh, the, the we're not going to get broken up um, for dancing together except during this stay-at-home order. But um, on a typical basis, dance cl- dance halls 
are pay have to pay a annual license fee, and it's I think it's about seven hundred and fifty dollars. And dance studios do not. And then cabarets, which is another word for strip clubs, they also have a license fee that's more expensive. So it's like the more clothes are, that are going to be left out of the room, the more it's going to cost. Like if you, well, I shouldn't say that. It's just, it's like it goes from dance studio, which is free, to dance hall, which is going to cost you a little bit, to a strip club, which is going to cost you quite a bit more. Yeah. So you you mentioned you think we really need to honor. Oh, sorry. No, I was trying to bring people together outside in large groups. Awesome. Yeah, story of my life. <laughs> for sure. Um, you were saying that what we really need to do is honor our teachers, like the people who pass this on to us. How do you think we should honor them? Well, we are living in new, a very, very fast changing world right now. We went from one lifestyle to another and um, we're adjusting. 
um, if we if we stayed here in our houses, what would you want for us? My guest today has been Christina Katsidis. Christina, thank you for being a part of Dance Talks.